Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. We're going to spend time in God's Word this morning. I'm going to be preaching from John chapter 4. And uh, before I get into that, though, uh, I've been at Bronx Park from the very beginning. Uh, we're coming up on nine years there, and so it's, it's a really exciting thing that uh, God's, God's been doing lots of, of great things. And, you know, God did a lot of things to prepare me for becoming a pastor. You know, Bible school was, was one of those things, and lots of great preparation for ministry. Taught me how to prank my roommate without ever getting caught. Taught me how to stay up, you know, three nights in a row, cranking out three different papers for three different classes, and all kinds of wonderful, great things. But I've learned lots of different things uh, from Bible college, but uh, amazingly enough, out of all the years that I was there, uh, one of the stories was the woman at the well. And I know where it's found. It's found in John chapter 4. Everything else I learned, I completely have no clue what it was, where it's found, uh, but I've learned lots of, of great things. And so uh, it's going to be an amazing story this morning. But really quickly before uh, I get into that, I just want to quickly pray for us. So Father, I thank you so much for your word. We just elevate it this morning. I thank you that your spirit is going to speak through your word to your people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we read God's word, God wants to do a number of different things for us. And I always try to think of of two different things. The first thing is, when we read God's word, we need to ask ourselves the question of, what does it teach us about Jesus? And the second thing is, what does God's word teach us about us? And so we're going to look at those two main things in this story this morning that we're going to pull from John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles or your magical phone Bibles, you can pull those out to John chapter 4. Follow along with me this morning. It's also going to be up on the screen as well. So we're going to start in verse 1. And I'm going to go through and I'm going to break it down in sections. And we're going to kind of draw and pull out what I believe God is speaking uh, about his son Jesus and about us from this. So verse 1. Now... When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now this is a little bit of sort of setting up the scene, giving us a little bit of the context of what's going on. Uh, You know, the Bible kind of doesn't start in one chapter and go to the next. It's kind of this long story that we read. So Jesus here is um, doing some things, and the Pharisees come along, uh, and the Pharisees are really the religious leaders of the day. They're kind of like um, the gospel police, where they would come around to all the things that are going on in the land and community, and really check up and see if things are being done properly and rightly. And they really do not like John the Baptist, because he is really preaching some things uh, that are against uh, what the Pharisees uh, believe to be true. And uh, they definitely do not like Jesus. And here we see this moment of setting up this scene of Jesus gaining more followers than John had. And, uh, you know, this tells us a little bit about the way Jesus views competition and, and these sort of Pharisees and saying, hey, you know, we, we've got these people believing what we're believing and John's coming up and he's kind of stirring it all up and Jesus is gathering more followers to himself and we don't really like that. So there's this little bit of competition that's, that's going on here. And we see Jesus' response is he leaves. 
Now, the other thing that we know a little bit about the Pharisees, if you read in in any of the other Gospels, Jesus comes and he he preaches good news. He preaches all kinds of different truths. And the Pharisees don't like what Jesus talks about. And so what we often see are these moments where the Pharisees try to prevent Jesus from doing what he's doing. Oftentimes there's a big crowd. Um, The Pharisees want to grab him, subdue him, maybe, you know, throw him off a cliff in in one of the stories. And Jesus just kind of miraculously turns and goes the other way. And it's just like he escapes like Harry Houdini, just poof, he's gone, they can't grab him. And the truth in that is Jesus has a timeline of what he's going to accomplish. And in his mind and in his heart, he knows, and in this very moment, he's saying, my time has not yet come to be handed over. And so he recognizes that everything's building up, and so what does he do? He exits the scene, and he leaves uh, Judea, and he goes to enter into Galilee. Well, we know with the whole competition thing, John couldn't care less. If you read in in chapter 3, you know, there's this uh, famous phrase that John uses. He says, I must decrease and he must increase. So John completely understands and knows that the purpose of his life is to have his followers and disciples come and actually go and to be with Jesus. So he's not concerned at all about what's going on in this moment. And so we see Jesus departing from Judea and going to Galilee. And then we're going to pick it up. Verse 4, continue on in the story. And it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Well, if we know anything about the uh, geography and that region, uh, there's actually many roads that lead from uh, Judea to, to Galilee. You can throw that map up there. Just a second. I know there's a, a lot of pieces on it, but you see sort of that bottom area, Judea, and then on top there's Galilee. And Samaria is kind of stuck right there in the middle. And so um, Jesus is going through Samaria to get to Galilee, and he has to interact with the Samaritan people. And, and I want to talk just for a minute about, because we, we read in other parts in God's Word about the Jews and the Samaritans, and there's this sort of hatred that the Jews have for the Samaritans. And maybe we're kind of like, why is that? What's going on there? And so I'm going to explain a few of the historical pieces that are kind of going on in the land to help us to understand why this is going on. So one of the first things and in comparisons uh, between Jews and the Samaritans that we understand is that the Jews... Um, believe the entirety of the Old Testament. So from, from, Genesis, uh, from Gen- Genesis, uh, to the end of the Old Testament, they believed was the inspired word of God, where the Samaritans actually only believed in the first five books of the Bible in the Torah. That was what, what they believed. So there's a distinction on that. And what happened in history was there's, there's the 12 tribes of Israel and there was a time right around the period of, of the kings in the Old Testament where um, that group was actually divided. So what we see are there's 10 out of the 12 groups uh, that separate and they become uh, this group that uh, settles in the land of Samaria. Uh, they eventually uh, become sort of uh, Samaritans as well as, as Jews. And then the, the other two tribes, uh, Benjamin and, let me just check to make sure I get the right one here, um, 
Benjamin and Judah, yeah, they, they actually kept their capital city in Jerusalem. So we have this, this division of these 12 groups, 10 go this way, 2 go that way. And so there's a, there's a division um, physically in these two groups. Now, what began to happen in history was in uh, 722 BC, uh, Assyria, this, this group came in and conquered Israel and actually took most of that group into captivity. And so what happened was uh, these Gentiles came in to that group, bringing their pagan gods, pagan worship, and the Jewish people in those tribes kind of took on um, worship of Yahweh, but also worship of these pagan idols and gave themselves into uh, marriage uh, that they were not supposed to give themselves into. And so they were kind of viewed as this sort of mixed breed of, of Jewish people. And, and that brought on a lot of disdain uh, and hatred uh, of the Jewish people of what was kind of going on and happening uh, throughout history. But we're, what we're going to see in a little bit of one of the, I, I think, the bigger issues of divide between these two groups is where they believed the worship of God should take place. You see, um, the Jews worshipped in the Temple Mount on uh, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where we see the Samaritans actually built themselves a separate temple uh, on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. So we see a number of differences between these two groups, which kind of helps paint the picture and explain why the Jews had such uh, a hatred and disdain for the Samaritans. So much so that they didn't want to pass through. Um, that when you saw that, that map of Judah, uh, Judea and Galilee, uh, Samaria was obviously the shortest, quickest route to go right through straight point A to point B, but they would often reroute and either go along uh, the water along the coastline or go around the other side to not have anything to do with this group of people. So that kind of paints a little bit of picture of what we're going to interact and what we're going to see in a bit of a moment. But if we understand who Jesus is and why he's here on this earth, see, Jesus doesn't make decisions of his own will. We understand and read that he says, I do everything that the Father tells me to do. He is in complete obedience to the Father's will. And so what I believe when the scripture says he had to go to Samaria was because the Spirit was driving him there. There was something that God wanted to do and accomplish, and Jesus was obedient by following the will of the Father. So we continue on in this story. Verse 6 says, well, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, so Jesus was by himself. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritan. So we begin seeing this picture play out right before our eyes. So we see in, in these verses a little bit of the humanity of Jesus, right? He's traveled, he's gone on this journey, he is wearied and exhausted, and so he sits down by this well and he asks this woman for a drink, like any one of us would want to do. Yet it's very important for us to understand the, the writer talks about the time of day is important because it says it's the sixth hour. Well, in the time in that day, it actually means it's noon. It's right around noon time. This is the hottest time of the day. And so we see this picture being painted of Jesus coming to a place 
where he really shouldn't be in Samaria and begins a conversation with a woman who he really shouldn't be talking to, a Samaritan nonetheless. Well, it continues on in the story in verse 10. And Jesus answers her and he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. This is such an amazing conversation that Jesus has with this woman. And as I was thinking about this conversation and what's going on in this picture, it made me think of this. And and I want to just sort of explain this quote to you. You can throw that quote up on, on the screen. It says this, I believe our human condition is that we continually are looking to the natural when Jesus wants to reveal the spiritual. This is completely what is happening in this conversation. We, we actually begin to see, if you've been reading and, and following in, in the book of John, back in, in chapter 3, Jesus actually has another conversation with another person called Nicodemus. And he begins offering him and talking about the kingdom... And explains to him, well, that in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus, just like the woman at the well, has a very similar humanistic response. And what he says is, well, how am I to be born from my mother's womb a second time? Right? He, he's thinking about the natural thing of how is this possible, Jesus, for me to be born again? And we see the same thing here with the woman. And that is so our reaction, isn't it, you guys? When Jesus comes and he brings us amazing things, we want to look to the natural as to how he's going to solve this issue in our lives. We want something that we can hear, see, touch, and feel. And the whole while, Jesus wants to always go somewhere deeper, doesn't he? Well, we continue, and she talks as well. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? The answer is a resounding yes. Jesus is all throughout God's word. We continually see Jesus. And then this is really a part of um, him claiming to be God is he goes kind of throughout his life, kind of blowing up the pieces of the Old Testament and saying, look, all these men that you put your faith and your trust in, like Abraham and Moses and Jacob, Jesus comes along and he says, I am greater than all of them. He shows us that he's a greater priest, he's a greater king, he's a greater fill-in-the-blank. And it's a part of what Jesus is doing here. He says, yes, I am better than your forefather Jacob who gave you this well. And the amazing thing is he goes on and he explains exactly why he is greater. In verse 13, Jesus answers that question and he says to her, well, everyone who drinks of this water from the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman responds and says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's in. All right, Jesus, you have this living water that you want to give to me. It's like you're in church. 
You raise your hand, you go to the discovery table, all right, I'm in, I bought in, what's, what's next? Right? She's in. And it's amazing and fantastic what's happening, and yet at the same time, she doesn't fully understand what Jesus is offering. She doesn't quite get it. And I want us to really closely look at her response. We read it, it says, give me water so that... So that I won't be thirsty or have to come here again. This is so typical, I think, of of our response. Or at least I'm willing to say typical of my responses. I fit so well with where this woman is at in this question. She's not quite fully understanding of what Jesus is here to offer and bring to her. You know, sometimes in our lives, it's often in the most painful places where Jesus wants to come. And bring living water. For the Samaritan woman, Jacob's well would not have represented anything that was of good value or good feelings. She never would have woke up any morning and thought, oh great, I get to walk to this well in the heat of the day by myself. Because what we begin to learn is that for this woman, all of the odds in her life were heavily stacked against her. She was rejected by the Jews because of her religious beliefs. She was rejected because she was a woman. She was rejected because of the relationships that she's had and rejected even now because of the relationship that she has that we're going to read about in just a little minute. And she knew it. She knew that all of these things were strikes against her. You see, this church, I believe, is the first step in us being able to receive anything from Jesus. And it's this, that we understand that we have all kinds of strikes against us. See, this is the struggle that the world continues to have. They don't believe they have any strikes against them. And in this world, if you are out there long enough, you'll hear messages that you are a good person. You have everything in you to make it. You know, all this great stuff. And it's a lie. The gospel in the Bible tells us that we are sinners. It says that you, no one is righteous, no, not one. That we have all f- sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is our human condition. And until we come to the place where we recognize and realize that we have some strikes against us, there's some sin in our lives that we don't quite measure up, that I don't believe we'll ever receive anything from God. And it's why the world struggles to receive the parts that God wants to bring into the lives of the people he wants to reach. I want to talk a little bit about some of the interactions I've, I've had with people over the years, some of the things that I've heard. Um, and it's a little bit of, I believe, our, our humanistic motivation for trying Jesus. I've, I've heard lots of people talk about I've tried Christianity and it just didn't work for me. Or, you know, I was in one season of my life where I felt like I really needed this, but once I kind of got on my feet, you know, I I, I thought I could kind of handle it myself. And so, the idea that the woman had of what Jesus was offering was wrong. I believe what she thought was, oh great, if I take this living water... I won't have to be thirsty again, but I also won't have to come to this well every day in shame, in guilt, by myself, in the heat of the day. 
And sometimes I think, if we're really honest with ourselves, we struggle or we become more interested, not really interested in who Jesus is, but rather what he can do for us in the moment. And then the minute he stops serving our needs, we're done with them. Hmm. In a minute, we're going to read about the woman who had five husbands. I wonder if that was a little bit of her attitude towards some of the husbands that she had. I'm here in this relationship as long as you're serving me. But until you stop serving me the way I'm needing it, wanting it, well, then I'm, I'm done. While reading this story really convicted me, and I think if you're a married person, we can all relate to this. Sometimes the way I act towards my wife is not always the greatest. I'm willing to admit that because I can get so caught up in my own selfish needs and the things that I want where sometimes we come into our marriages, if we're honest, and we think about our needs. And when our spouse isn't fulfilling those needs, we think, well, I have every right to be angry. And they're not doing the things that they promised me and all this kind of stuff. And we think, well, that's it. That's my exit strategy. I'm willing to leave now. But the reality of marriage is this, you guys. It's not a commitment that you can make and break. It's a covenant between you and God that we need to understand and hold on to a covenant that when we enter into it, marriage is not about me, but it's about serving the other person. So even when they're not meeting my needs, I've committed to say I'm willing to to serve your needs no matter what. And, And that's the idea of what marriage is really about. And a little bit of what Jesus, I believe, is trying to get this woman to understand. I want to quickly do a little bit of an illustration of what I think is going on here because here's this well that Jesus sits down by and he meets this woman and he offers her living water to drink. And at this point, she's in, right? She's like, give me that water so I don't have to thirst or come to this shameful place ever again. And so she comes like, like we do. And I know this isn't well water, but (laughs) for illustration purposes and This is the living water that Jesus wants to offer us that creates an ever-flowing well from within that never runs dry, that brings eternal life and wants us as his children to allow him to be that life-giving source. And so here's the well. Maybe we've tasted of it. Maybe we've experienced it. And then what we do is we go out in the world and there's all kinds of other wells out there. And we start going to them. Maybe it's relationships. We look for relationships to fulfill us. Notice how there's not as much water in this one. And we dig, and we dig, and we search, and we search, and we search. And we drink from other wells until it runs dry. And then we get frustrated, we get angry, we get upset. And what we do in that moment is we put the blame on God and we say, well, Jesus, you offered me this living water and it's not fulfilling my needs anymore. And I believe Jesus wants to come to us and says, what well have you been drinking from? That's a question I want to ask us this morning. What well have you been drinking from? 
Because it's so easy, you guys, for us to get drawn into the world and pulled every which way to try to find fulfillment and satisfaction from other wills that will never satisfy. But what we can't do is when we veer off and do that is blame God and tell him, look, you just don't work for me. That's not what we can do. So Jesus continues on. In this amazing conversation with this woman in verse 16, Jesus says to her, and here's where this takes a big turn. Go call your husband and tell him to come here. Well, the woman answered him, well, I I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five. And the one you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So the the woman here, Jesus has this conversation and begins going into an area of her life that is very sensitive. and, And Jesus would not have known all these details, but comes and begins speaking these things that he or some people maybe didn't know about. And begins poking at this stuff. And and in this part of the story, I want to talk a little bit about how the community responded to this woman. See, that was all looked down upon. Her whole situation, like I talked about, all these strikes against her. The people in that community would have labeled her, cast her out of their presence. She would have been unclean and completely distanced themselves from her. And oftentimes, that can be our response to certain individuals that we know are mixed up in all kinds of things. We're like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And yet, it takes an completely strong, stable person to enter into engaging a conversation with people that the world places at a distance. I want us to notice that Jesus does the exact opposite of what everybody else is doing. Rather than being distance, walking around Samaria, he enters into the very place he shouldn't be, talks with a woman who he shouldn't talk with, who's a complete outcast, goes out of his way that's not culturally popular to have a conversation with this woman. And rather than labeling her, he cuts right to the heart of her issue. You guys, rarely do we do this. <laughs> rarely do we see people doing this. We, we see people's ugliness from afar and maybe we don't want to be associated with it and Jesus does the opposite and he draws near to her but what he does is he works at fixing what's broken this is so what Jesus does best and so I think it's really important for us to understand kind of what's what's happening with this woman in the culture in this day and age you see women were not treated very well in this day and age, they didn't really have uh, a lot of things. They were actually more sought as actually possession um, by men. And when it came to the area of, of marriage and finding relationship in that way, women didn't really have a lot of say of who they married. It was the man who chose uh, or the family who chose. And so if the woman didn't have a big say in choosing who she was going to marry, I don't think she would have had a lot of say in who she didn't want to be with. You see, in that culture and in that day and age, it was the men who issued the certificates of divorce. 
So that paints a little bit of a picture of what this woman is maybe going through and experiencing. And so we, the text doesn't really tell us why those five husbands didn't work out. Maybe there was some uh, immoral piece on her part that the husband put her away. Maybe the five husbands died. Maybe that's why the sixth guy is sitting there scratching his head thinking, I don't know what's going on with those other five guys, but I'm not sure I want to commit to this woman. He's hesitating. It doesn't tell us, but when I look at this story of this woman, I can sympathize with her. Because I believe what she was dealing with was rejection. Complete, utter rejection. Rejected by these five husbands, rejected by the man that she is still with because he doesn't want to commit to her. And it's amazing because Jesus comes in this conversation. What does he do? He stirs it all up. He goes to this wound, this soft spot, and starts talking about an area that she's probably sitting there thinking, I don't know why this guy wants to talk about this stuff. I don't want to talk about it. I want to completely forget all these things that I'm dealing with because it's just a heavy burden on me. Thanks, Jesus, for reminding me of all the garbage situation I find myself in. It's like someone coming up to you and just poking at your wound. I know what you did. I know that big mistake. And yet there's a big difference in the way Jesus does this. See, people want to point out our wounds and our big mistakes because they want to maybe rub it in your face. Let us know that you're not as great as they are, whatever it may be. But Jesus doesn't do that and he's not doing that here either. See, what I believe Jesus is doing in this moment with this woman is he's pointing out to this Samaritan woman the very thing in her life that she's been thirsting and longing for. In her life, what she's done is she's gone to all these other kind of wells, thirsting, and when I think about thirst, I think about what is the longing of your heart? What is something that you desire and want so desperately in your life that you think will satisfy you? And what this woman was doing that Jesus was pointing out where she was believing that she would find satisfaction and fulfillment in these husbands. So she was chasing after men to fill a void and an emptiness in her life that she thought would work. And so Jesus comes along and he brings this all up. And he, and he says to her, you've been chasing after that longing in your heart and you've been trying to fill it with men. How's that been going for you? And she knows and we all know it hasn't been going all that great because you know if you go out in the world long enough it just doesn't satisfy. Not completely. It might for a little bit but eventually if you stay there long enough it will run dry. So he points out in her life, the very thing that is broken that she's trying to fill. But then Jesus, in all his wonder and amazement, what does he do? He brings the solution. He doesn't just point out what's broken and say, well, good luck, I hope you find something else that's going to satisfy. No, he brings the solution to her. We continue reading in this story, verse 20. And this takes... Another turn, because I believe what's happening is Jesus is touching on a wound and the woman doesn't want to continue talking about it. 
So instead, she changes the conversation to a theological topic and says, well, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Well, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You see, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So what we understand here, he's talking about these places that these two different groups worship and the contention between them. And he kind of blows it all out. And it's amazing because God has always created a space for us to worship him. First, it began in the Garden of Eden, this safe, sacred space where we could have a relationship and worship God. Then that was broken and God had a people that he walked with throughout the wilderness. And even then, they had a tent that they could meet and worship God and experience his presence. And then eventually, they built a temple in Jerusalem where they could worship God. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and then he blows all of that up. And he says, look, that actually doesn't really matter anymore. What God is looking and longing for are worshipers that will worship him in spirit and in truth. So just like Jesus was getting to the deep matters of the heart with this woman, he wants to get to the motives and intentions of our hearts. We can no longer, and here's what I think he's getting at with kind of blowing up this idea of the temple. We can no longer hide behind the places we worship and the people we run with. So often what we want to do is we want to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm great and I can make it because I go to this church. Or I know I'm, I'm a believer because I hang out with these people who do all kinds of good stuff. Well, Jesus says, no, 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 that doesn't cut it. You cannot hide behind those things any longer. The people who I long to worship me, worship in spirit and truth. And so what he's talking about is he's talking about the condition of our heart. What is the condition of your heart? That's all that matters. That's what he's longing for. You know, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, the Lord does not look on the things that people look at. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what God desires, longs for, looks at. And so we continue reading this story as it's going to wrap up here. And it says, the woman said to him, well, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This profound, profound moment. Jesus has kind of just started his ministry, doing all kinds of things. And the situation that we see is he has this one-on-one conversation with this woman. We read that the disciples have left. They've gone off to go to the food truck and get something to eat so they can have something to eat. So he's there by himself. And he's with this woman that everybody else in that day and age would have said, what are you doing there, Jesus? And yet he reveals his messiahship to her the very first person. We would have thought, well, wouldn't you have come and like 
talk to the Pharisees and the religious leaders and say, look, I'm here. I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm going to prove it over time. Just watch. Or maybe with his closest friends, his disciples would have pulled them aside in a conversation. Look, guys, I got to tell you something. I'm here, but I'm actually the Son of God. I'm the Messiah who you've been longing and waiting for this whole time. But no. What does Jesus do in his amazing, humble fashion? He waits till he has this encounter with a woman at the well to reveal who he truly is. And that, church, is what gives us hope. When you feel like you are the lowest of the low, that you couldn't possibly in all of your good deeds and goodness ever make it to a relationship with God the Father, here's what this story tells us. It tells us, The lowest of the low are welcome. In fact, they're more than welcome. He pursues you. He chases after you and offers you living water to drink. And so this is what Jesus wants to offer us this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yeah, you can give the Lord a hand this morning. Why don't you guys stand to your feet? You know, at the end of every message, we offer an invitation, and I want to talk a little bit about this story because I think it frames it so perfectly. Maybe there are people in this room that are kind of relating to the, those individuals that I, that I talked about that think, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. I go to the right places. I hang out with the right people. You know, I've, I've been coming to church. I tithe. I, I do all these kind of things. But what we see is revealed in this story is that that doesn't cut it. That there's strikes against us. There's sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the place where we find ourselves in this human condition. There's sin that Jesus and Jesus alone can deal with. And so, in the very same way that Jesus has this conversation with this woman offering living water that will create a spring in them that will bring eternal life. It's the exact same invitation that Jesus wants to bring to you this morning. He is waiting, longing to bring satisfaction and fulfillment in your life that you've never experienced before because you've never got it from anything else. And so what I want us to do is just quickly, right where you're at, let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes. If you're that person this morning, that wants to receive that living water from Jesus. And I'm not talking about, have you come to church or done all these things? I'm talking about, have you ever had a moment in your life where you've had an encounter with Jesus, where you want to respond to him and say, yeah, Jesus, I know I've done all kinds of wrong, but I want to repent in this moment. I want to receive that living water into my life, receiving eternal life, and to have a relationship with you to where you are my source of life. That's what I'm talking about. If you're here this morning, this morning and you want to make that decision, I want you to just to raise your hand right where you're at. You can put it back down. It's just a real quick decision. This is between you and God. Thank you. I see that hand. I see that hand. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you forward. We're going to pray a simple prayer together, beginning this invitation and journey to walk with Jesus. All right. Well, we're going to pray. I want you to repeat after me. And if you raise your hand or... Maybe that's just the cry of your heart this morning. I want you to pray these words with all your heart. Dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner. 
I have all these strikes against me. All these things that are on me. But I believe that you and you alone are the remedy and solution for my problem. Because I believe that you came to die on the cross for my sin. And that on the third day you rose again. And that now you will forever be my Lord. That all the old things in my life are gone away. And that in this very moment, I receive that living water from you. I invite you into my life. I make you my life source. That I will get everything from, from this moment on. And in this time, I am a new creation in Christ. I am a Christian. In the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Yeah. You can give the Lord a hand this morning for that. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app. 